Now we don't even know if anyone remains in jail. It's absolutely absurd from the legal standpoint. It's also absurd from the standpoint of justice. I think one of the main reasons was actually uh, sabotage by Ukrainian law enforcement agencies. There seems to be, you know, nearly total impunity when it comes to Maidan events. And also not without Kremlin's involvement, Russia is again involved. Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Kiev Independent explains Ukraine's biggest events in just under 30 minutes. I'm your host, Anastasia Lapatina. Today, I'm joined by my colleague Oleg Suhov to discuss the disappointing outcome of the trial against those who killed unarmed protesters during the Euromaidan revolution in 2014, Russia's role in allegedly sabotaging this case, and also why, almost 10 years later, the post-revolutionary justice still hasn't been served. Oleg? Thank you for coming. Thanks for inviting me. Before we go on, I'll remind you guys to please subscribe to The Kim Independent wherever you're listening to this show, whether that's on YouTube or on audio platforms. Leave reviews, likes, comments. It only takes you a second, but goes a really long way for us because it helps you to promote our podcast, our show, and more people will be able to see it and more people will learn about the war in Ukraine. So, Oleg, we brought you here today to talk about the investigation into the killings of unarmed protesters during the Euromaidan revolution in 2014. And more importantly, this investigation's very problematic outcome. And for those who don't know, Euromaidan, uh, or as it's known here in Ukraine, the Revolution of Dignity, was a hugely consequential event in the history of Ukraine. Millions of people took to the streets to protest for Western-oriented reforms and against the Russian-backed President Viktor Yanukovych, who tried to suppress the protests with brutal force. Around 100 people were killed, many more were injured, but nevertheless, the Ukrainian people won, and Yanukovych eventually fled to Russia, where he's allegedly still now. So the new government then initiated all these investigations into the violence and abuse of power that happened during the revolution. And today we're going to talk about one of those investigations, one of those trials. So to begin with, can you just describe the basics of this recently concluded case, starting with who were the people on trial? So the people on trial were five uh, officers of uh, the Berkut uh, riot police unit. Basically, they were charged with murdering dozens of uh, unarmed protesters uh, on February 20th, 2014. So there were many more episodes in uh, Euromaidan cases and also other murder cases, but this was the most high-profile case because this was the most dramatic event of the revolution and the biggest number of uh, protesters were, were killed on that day. So these are just regular riot police uh, officers. They're not like officers in charge or not commanding officers, were they? Well, one of them was a uh, commanding officer. Uh, the others are sort of rank-and-file officers. And what exactly are they being prosecuted for? You said murdering protesters, but what's the actual charge? So the, the actual charge initially was uh, a terrorist attack. So it, it sounds mm. a bit bizarre in this yeah. situation, because usually it's associated with, uh, not with law enforcement agencies, mm-hmm. but with just terrorist groups. Mm-hmm. But uh, according to the definition provided by Ukrainian law, uh, a terrorist attack is is some kind of uh, violent event uh, that aims to draw public attention or influence the decisions of uh, government bodies mm-hmm. or groups of citizens. So technically, under Ukrainian law, uh, it fits this criterion. 
But uh, actually, the judge uh, dropped this uh, specific charge, uh, terrorism attack, and uh, he only left uh, murder charges and abuse of power charges. And were those two charges uh, pressed against all five of these men? And what were the results? What, what was the actual sentencing? Uh, so uh, basically, the, the prosecutors uh, wanted uh, all of the five uh, suspects uh, to be uh, sentenced to life imprisonment. And uh, according to their logic, uh, they uh, should be held responsible collectively because they were members of one criminal group. And according to actually an opinion issued by Ukraine's Supreme Court, uh, members of a criminal group should be held responsible collectively. Even if you can't prove uh, like specifically that a certain member of a criminal group carried out specific actions, if you've proved that he was a member of this group, mm -hmm. then he should be held responsible. So one of the problems was that uh, there were face masks and uh, uh, in some cases it was impossible to identify which specific uh, Berkut officer killed uh, a specific protester. But in, in all of the five cases, it was proven that they were present uh, on the murder scene and uh, that they participated in this. It, it was just not clear which, in some cases, in some cases it was more clear, in some cases it was less clear that a specific uh, officer killed a specific protester. So, um, and the courts uh, rejected this scheme uh, that the prosecutors uh, promoted and basically uh, opted for individual responsibility. And that's why one of them was acquitted and uh, uh, one of them was convicted only on abuse of authority charges. So uh, the problem with this is that if we compare uh, this situation with some kind of like uh, famous terrorist attack like 9-11, then uh, it's logical that all members of a terrorist group uh, who were involved in, spe in a specific terrorist attack uh, should should receive like similar sentences, uh, regardless of their specific actions, just by virtue of their membership in that in that group. But in this case, it seems like you know like uh, uh, that some you know it can, can be compared to some uh, Al Qaeda members who 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 were not uh, who will. Will be released. Will not go to jail. But because they weren't on the planes. Even, even though we know that they participated in this terrorist attack, it's like it seems illogical. The prosecutors and the families and lawyers of the victims were unhappy with this result uh, because uh, those who received the harshest sentences are not in Ukraine, and those who are in Ukraine are getting off easy. The harshest sentence was received by Yanishevsky, a commanding officer who is hiding abroad, uh, most likely in Russia. Another two Berkut officers, uh, Zinchenko and Abroskin, uh, received 15 years in prison each, and they're also hiding abroad. And those who are in Ukraine, uh, Tamtura uh, and uh, Marinchenko, they're getting off easy because basically one of them was acquitted on all charges, and the other one, uh, received uh, five years in prison, but he has already served them, so he will not serve his time in jail anymore. So how is this possible that people that are responsible for such terrible crimes 
during the Ukrainian revolution escape Ukrainian custody and, as you say, end up hiding in Russia? How did that happen? The most dramatic uh, episode that basically led to this uh, perceived injustice uh, was uh, the prison exchange orchestrated by Zelensky in 2019. Uh, so he agreed with Russia's proxies in, in the Donbass on exchanging five Berkut officers for Ukrainian prisoners of war uh, held by Russia's proxies. Basically, uh, it sounds great that, you know, Ukrainian prisoners of war returned to Ukraine. But uh, there are nuances because, because it would have been possible to do that uh, legally if uh, those who were exchanged had been convicted, but they had not been convicted. So uh, Ukra under Ukrainian law, it's legally impossible to actually exchange someone who has not been convicted. It's, uh, it's absolutely illegal, but this was done by Ukra Ukraine's prosecutor's office. Actually, the, the prosecutors who were in charge of this case refused to succumb to political pressure. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, prosecu then Prosecutor General Ruslan Rybashapka suspended them from the case and replaced them with uh, prosecutors who agreed to this exchange. And, uh, you know, lawyers to whom I talked believe that it's absolutely illegal and it actually constitutes a crime. So technically, they believe that Rybashapka committed a crime. By allowing this exchange to go on. Yeah, yeah, because it's, uh, there is no Ukrainian law that allows that. It's, it's absolutely absurd from the legal standpoint. It's also absurd from the standpoint of justice. <laughs> well, but uh, then in terms of justice, though, yeah. you say that it would be legal if Ukraine exchanged those Berkut officers after we convicted them, but they would still escape justice anyway, uh, right? Well, they wouldn't uh, be serving their time in jail. It, it's true. I mean, that, that, that's a, let's say, um, that can be discussed, but at least it would have been more legal. Right. I agree. Uh, yeah. So basically, um, the problem was that, um, so they, they were exchanged without any court verdict. Another problem uh, was that two of the five Berkut officers actually returned to Ukraine or, or remained in Ukraine, which, was, which made the situation even more absurd. Because then the question arises if, uh, like, okay, if they were exchanged, if they didn't want, did not want to, to be tried by Ukrainian courts, why did they remain in Ukraine? So uh, immediately uh, there was speculation that these two Berkut officers who remained in Ukraine, and these are Tamture and the uh, Marinchenko. Uh, they actually uh, concluded some kind of shady deal with the court. So basically, they knew that nothing bad would happen to them wow. before, long before the verdict. And uh, this uh, could also be absolutely illegal. And I think it should be investigated when, when there are <laughs> effective law enforcement agencies in Ukraine. Uh, and when there is pol political will to investigate this. So I think it, it may also constitute a crime. But uh, eventually, like uh, when they basically received no jail time, it became clear that there was something very shady going on. So basically, the five officers who killed unarmed protesters during the revolution, they were actually illegally, as you say, exchanged with Russia in a prison swap. But then two of them came back despite the investigation into them going on, yeah, supposedly, allegedly, knowing that nothing would happen to them anyway. Yeah, we, we don't actually know if they came back or just remained in Ukraine. There was some... Was there no, like, actual swap, as in when they put you uh, on a bus, it's, go it's, in the middle of it's, nowhere? It's not clear. It's, it's not clear if they actually went anywhere. Okay. So, uh, so maybe they just remained. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that, that's true. And uh, the situation sounds absolutely absurd. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, uh, both Ukrainian media and Ukra- Ukrainian law enforcement agencies uh, have paid zero attention to this absurd situation. But another question I have, though, is why would Russia be interested in getting those Birkut officers in the first place? I mean, they're giving us our prisoners that they're holding to to get what? To get five guys who who killed Ukrainians during the revolution? Why? There are different explanations of this. Uh, so the so the more obvious uh, explanation is that Russia has always used the Euromaidan revolution and, you know, Berkut offices in its propaganda. So it, it basically described the revolution as like a fascist coup d'etat. Uh, and uh, it described, uh, it also portrayed uh, those Berkut offices as uh, good people who are fighting against fascists. So, and uh, that's why uh, Russia needed them for propaganda purposes. Uh, but uh, there are also other explanations. So one of them is that, is that uh, Russia could have been involved uh, in some of the events of the Euromaidan revolution because it basically uh, the prosecutors and investigators uh, have uh, uh, investigated this version according to which Russia uh, actually triggered several escalations during the Euromaidan revolution, basically influenced uh, the Yanukovych regime mm-hmm. in a certain way. So uh, according to one of the theories, it actually wanted, wanted the revolution to, to get out of control and to become bloodier, uh, to create chaos in uh, Kiev and have an excuse for annexing Ukrainian territories. So recently, uh, more proof emerged that uh, Russia could have been involved in uh, the Euromaidan revolution when uh, the State Investigation Bureau uh, charged several Russian FSB officers, officers of Russia's main intelligence service, with uh, helping the Yanukovych regime uh, to suppress uh, the Euromaidan revolution and promote violence. Uh, so th- this is, I think, uh, just a small episode, uh, but I think uh, there the, the, the should be much more evidence of uh, Russia's involvement in the future. And this this uh, version of Russia's uh, involvement should be investigated further. So in that case, Russia would want those Berkut officers to be inside Russia uh, so they don't spill the secrets of, you know, and the details of this Russia's involvement during the investigation. Yeah, according to this theory, yes. And why did it take so long? I mean, we, we're, we're reaching the 10th year anniversary of the revolution. So why did it take basically a decade for this case to conclude? Um, and some cases are still ongoing, I assume. Why did it take so long for the case to reach the verdict? There are some like objective and subjective reasons. So, so objectively, there are some complicated uh, cases, not only in Ukraine, but uh, in any country that require a lot of time. Uh, but in this case, uh, there were also some subjective reasons and uh, there was sabotage of uh, Euromaidan cases. Um, and this prisoner exchange, for example, it's basically uh, suspended this trial uh, for, for about one and a half years. And uh, also when the full-scale Russian invasion began, uh, the, the trial was also suspended uh, for a while. So. Uh, there were several like reasons that delayed it. I think one of the main reasons was actually uh, sabotage by Ukrainian law enforcement agencies. And why would they be interested in that? 
there are many reasons for sabotage. One is corruption. Another reason is uh, just some political connections. So uh, I'm not I'm not saying this applies specifically to this case, but if you be talking about Euromaidan cases in general, so there were some politically influential suspects who uh, were like uh, let off the hook, uh, who were uh, wh- whose cases were blocked just because of political reasons because they had political connections. So let's zoom out here for a minute. We know that around 100 people, there are different estimates, were murdered during the revolution. Um, Many others were badly injured. Some were terribly tortured even. And it was surely more than five officers who were committing these terrible crimes. So how did Ukraine approach this question of accountability um, after the revolution in general? Talking about uh, Birkut officers, obviously there were many more Birkut officers involved, uh, but all of them, almost all of them have fled. So uh, in 2014, several dozens of uh, Birkut officers fled, and actually uh, some of them were released by courts. Others were apparently informed about the impending arrest. So uh, again, some sabotage or corruption was involved. Another group of officers, as I said before, was able to flee because of this prisoner exchange. And uh, another group of officers fled in 2017. So um, most of them are hiding in Russia and in Russian-occupied territories. If we're talking about uh, Euromadan cases in general, there were several uh, major episodes. You know, in December 2013, January 2014, and February 2014. And uh, so there were several crackdowns on the Euromaidan revolution, and there were many suspects involved. Um, So in general, uh, hundreds of uh, suspects have been charged in the Euromaidan cases, uh, and dozens uh, have been tried and convicted. And according to the prosecutor's office, uh, as of 2021, about 10 people had been uh, given like real prison sentences, although um, even in this case, it's not entirely clear if any of them remain in jail now, because usually they receive uh, very small sentences. And uh, when, I, when I last checked, like who actually remained in prison several years ago, uh, it was just like two people, two people who actually served uh, uh, their time in jail at this specific moment. So now we don't even know if anyone remains in jail. So, um, and as far as, uh, you know, uh, corruption cases against Yanukovych's government are concerned, uh, then uh, they, uh, there has been very little progress. A lot of people have been charged in absentia, but the, the cases have uh, gone nowhere. And there were also a lot of journalist investigations uh, exposing, you know, some shady deals uh, between incumbent Ukrainian authorities and Yanukovych-era officials. So eventually, uh, there are almost no results in this area. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a very common way how Ukrainian civil society and journalists judge someone's integrity. I mean, I so often uh, see posts or investigations or articles, you know, showing what a particular official was doing during the revolution, right? Like, it's kind of like, what were you doing? What was your record? What were you voting for? Were you voting for Yanukovych's dictatorship loss that made it, you know, close to impossible and completely criminal to gather as groups and protests and stuff like that. So does that mean that a bunch of people who were 
basically on Yanukovych's side or, or bystanders or doing nothing to support the Ukrainian people, does that mean that they still remain in power? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the most prominent example is uh, Oleg Tatarov. Your, your favorite guy, clearly. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> who, who is the deputy chief of staff for Zelensky. And he was uh, a top police official uh, under Yanukovych during the Euromaidan revolution. So that means he was actually in charge of the Berkut riot police? No, no, he was not in charge of Berkut specifically. He was uh, working in another like, area, mm-hmm. but he was involved because he uh, actually s- spoke publicly several times about uh, uh, Euromaidan protesters. He actually uh, criticized them. He defended Berkut officers. And also, um, he has been actually investigated after the Euromaidan revolution. He was investigated for uh, his alleged role in uh, unlawfully persecuting Euromaidan protesters uh, through like fabricated criminal cases. And also, he's subject to the so-called lustration law uh, because uh, after the revolution, uh, the Ukrainian authorities passed uh, the lustration law, which bans certain Yanukovych era officials from holding state jobs and uh, Tatarov uh, like is explicitly subject to this law so he was appointed by Zelensky uh, illegally uh, so and he still illegally holds his job because he uh, he must be fired under the lustration law and does Zelensky have a comment on that what is the administration uh, saying well Zelensky uh, has usually ignored uh, this this issue uh some of his supporters i think claim that uh, the president's office is not is not a government body, technically, <laughs> and it's like it's 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 like a, it's a basically some absurd legal like pseudo legal arguments according to which uh, you know uh, officials for the president's office are not like regular state officials but you know some kind of extraordinary body that is not subject to the illustration law but it makes no sense to me. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, we should also uh, remember the fact that Tatarov was charged with bribery and uh, this this case was destroyed uh, and um, Zelensky also didn't react to that at all. So in a way, all of this is very much emblematic of Ukraine's broader issues with corruption and judicial system, because there seems to be, you know, nearly total impunity when it comes to Maidan events. And also not without Kremlin's involvement. Russia is again involved. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, so uh, prosecutors, including um, Sergei Grabatyuk, uh, who was like a t- top investigator at, at the prosecutor general's office in charge of Euromaidan cases, they repeatedly accused uh, top officials, both under the Poroshenko administration and under the Zelensky administration, of uh, blocking and sabotaging Euromaidan cases uh, for some political reasons and probably also because of corruption. And uh, so Gerbatyuk was actually eventually fired because of those accusations. So, uh, and if you're, not, if you're talking about uh, not only Euro, the Euromaidan, but uh, the general situation, I would say that uh, the results uh, in terms of uh, people's mentality, uh, there are some results because the mentality has changed since the Euromaidan revolution. But if, if the, uh, in terms of the rule of law, 
there has been very, very little change. There have, have been some uh, superficial uh, cosmetic changes. Some new law enforcement agencies have been created, like the NABU and the SAPO. But uh, fundamentally, uh, there is almost no change because, as, as I said before, if uh, top officials, uh, you know, officials close to the president, uh, remain absolutely outside uh, the law, they, they cannot be held accountable, they cannot be held responsible for their past actions, that means that uh, there is no rule of law. And um, so if, uh, like, obviously, if we compare Ukraine to like Russia or North Korea, the situation is better, but it's, it's not a very good comparison. comparison yeah. So if we compare, for example, Ukraine with Romania, where like a real anti-corruption drive has taken place, then uh, the results are much worse, much worse than in Romania. We dived into this particular topic, actually. We talked about the corruption in Ukraine's judicial system uh, in a separate podcast episode. So our audience should really check it out. It's really interesting. We're now going to be turning to the community question of the episode. As always, I'll remind you guys to please go to kimindependent.com slash membership, support the Kim Independent, donate to us either once or on a monthly basis for as little as $5 a month. You get really cool perks. And of course, our favorite perk is that you send us in questions before the release of every single episode. And we choose one each time to answer it for you. So this time, um, the community member is asking, did Russian agents involved in the revolution in 2014 want to prop up the government with violence or was Russia's goal creating chaos and a power vacuum which would allow Russia to annex Ukrainian territory more easily? So actually both versions exist. I know that uh, Ukrainian investigators uh, to whom I spoke uh, especially considered this version that, um, that Russia was trying to create chaos and anarchy in Ukraine to have an excuse to, you know, invade Ukraine and annex Ukrainian territories. And this is what eventually happened. So this version has been investigated, although uh, there are no final results yeah. in this area. So uh, uh, because either because there was not enough proof or because, you know, some, because of some political shenanigans that actually created obstacles uh, for this investigation. Actually, this uh, prison exchange that involved Berkut officers was one of those events that uh, thwarted, you know, impeded this uh, investigation of Russia's role. Well, Oleg, thank you so much. It was very interesting to listen to you as always. Thank you. Also this week, Russian forces have been launching heavy attacks across the entire Eastern Front, including in the Avdiivka, Kupansk, Luman, Bakhmut, and Marienka directions. The general staff of Ukraine's armed forces reported on October 23rd. According to the report released by the investigative Europe media outlet, since the beginning of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the European Union has continued to import critical raw materials from Russia, worth over $14 billion. The Insider News outlet also reported that Russian factories were using imported European components to produce its Kinjal missiles. And Ukraine's gross domestic product grew by 9.1% year-on-year, according to the Economy Ministry's preliminary estimates on October 25th. Economy Minister Yulia Sverdenko said that this is proof of the, quote, high ability of businesses to adapt to new challenges, as well as assistance from the state and international partners, end quote. 
You can find our show on YouTube and all audio platforms every Friday morning. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us and like our content wherever you're listening to the show. Go to comedependent.com membership to donate to The Comedependent and also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening.